You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff. My co-hosts are Elisa and Yvette, two national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. And we're joined tonight by Bob Litt, a friend of the cast and the former general counsel of ODNI, now of counsel at Morrison and Forrester. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And, Bob, thanks for coming in on a very uh, interesting week. Every time we um, look at the newspaper online or in paper, there's something new. Yeah, events are certainly outrunning us. Yes, well, that's why we pivot to Twitter in these moments, shamelessly. (laughs) So the national security laws news continues this week. Um, we talked generally about the ironically named Intelligence Community Whistleblower Act. Was it Protection ago? Act or something, right? Wasn't it? <laughs> right. A week ago with Brad Moss, who's an attorney in D.C. who specializes in whistleblower cases. And the IC Whistleblower Protection Act contains no real protections for whistleblowers. Isn't that the case? Well, n- yeah, not within the statute itself. Um, you have to understand that the, the original Whistleblowers Protection Act, which I think was passed in 1998 or something like that, maybe maybe even earlier, I don't remember the years, but it carved out um, intelligence officials altogether on the theory that the the president controls uh, classified information and uh, Congress can't pass a statute that allows employees of the intelligence community to disclose classified information. So the Intelligence Whistleblowers Protection Act um, provides a mechanism by which a whistleblower who wants to disclose information to the Congressional Intelligence Committees can do so. And it sets up a procedure which requires, as everybody knows by now because of the recent news, requires the whistleblower first to go either to the Inspector General of his or her own agency or to the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, who then reviews the uh, information, determines whether it's credible and uh, sufficiently important, and will then send it to the DNI, um, who uh, is supposed to forward it to the intelligence committees. Um, and in that way, the whistleblower can make the disclosure. And if the, if the intelligence community inspector general determines that the complaint is not credible, uh, the whistleblower is supposed to have the right to go to Congress on his or her own. So that just the, the act just sets up the procedures. In 2012, in fact, almost exactly a year ago, uh, seven years ago today, um, President Obama issued a, a presidential policy directive that established the protections for whistleblowers and basically says that anybody who follows the procedures set forth in the Whistleblower Protection Act is protected from retaliation. And that was then implemented by the Director of National Intelligence in coming something called Intelligence Community Directive 120. And both of those essentially say that no nobody in the intelligence community can take uh, employment action or action with respect to a security clearance against a whistleblower who follows the procedures in the Whistleblower Protection Act. Excellent. That, thank you for that laydown. Um, so um, that background is really helpful for us to apply to the current facts. Um, Congress is now pressing um, to have the whistleblower um, in uh, um, with respect to uh, President Trump um, and his uh, conversations with foreign leaders, um, their Congress wants them wants him or her to testify. Uh, is this a good idea? Uh, I think it's a very bad idea. 
Um, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. The first is that it's completely unnecessary. Um, the whistleblower was very clear in his or her complaint that the whistleblower had no personal knowledge. This, the, the complaint consisted of things that the whistleblower had been told by other people who had heard, been heard from other people. Um, and so the whistleblower is, if, if you want to get sort of technically legal about it, the whistleblower isn't a competent witness to any of this. It's all hearsay. Um, but at the same time, almost everything that's in this complaint has been corroborated by firsthand evidence at this point. The whistleblower described the July 25th conversation between President Trump and the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. And when the White House released the not quite transcript of that conversation, the whistleblower's description was almost 100% accurate. The whistleblower described how the transcript of this conversation and uh, the whistleblower said other conversations had been um, uh, put in a special secure uh, National Security Council controlled uh, uh, computer system um, rather than the ordinary dissemination of it. And the White House has admitted that this transcript was in fact handled that way. And while I don't believe the White House has officially admitted it, there have been plenty of press reports that other conversations were handled the same way. So that's been corroborated. Um, the whistleblower reported uh, the involvement of uh, 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 the president's lawyer, Rudolph Giuliani, and Attorney General Barr, and that's been corroborated. So, so there's no need for the whistleblower to testify. You can go out and get the witnesses who have the actual knowledge. Uh, on the other hand, there's, there's real risk in having the whistleblower testify. First of all, um, it, it's paramount that the whistleblower's identity and the whistleblower's identity be protected and that the whistleblower be protected from retaliation. Um, the whole idea of the whistleblower protection procedures is to provide an authorized channel for people in the intelligence community who see things that they think are waste or fraud or violations of law um, to report those within channels uh, and, and do that safely without fear of retaliation. If it turns out that whistleblowers can't be protected, um, it's simply going to encourage people, instead of following the authorized procedures, to go and leak to the press. And that's going to be, in the long run, much more damaging to the nation than protecting this individual whistleblower. But you have a situation where the president has said, I want to know who the whistleblower is. I think the whistleblower is guilty of treason. And you know how we used to handle uh, people who, who committed treason. Um, and you have Republicans uh, attacking the bona fides of the whistleblower, claiming the whistleblower had political motivations or, or was, was reporting inaccurately. Not all Republicans, in fairness. I mean, there seem to be a lot of them who understand. En enough. Uh, enough Republicans. So that... Um, uh, on the one hand, I would think that, that in the current environment where we've had examples of people committing acts of violence uh, in the name of, of the president, I think the whistleblower would legitimately fear for personal safety um, if the whistleblower's identity is revealed. Um, on the other hand, imagine what this whistleblower's testimony is going to look like. On the one, the, the, the questions to the whistleblower will all be, well, somebody told me this, somebody told me this, but no, I had no personal knowledge. And on the other hand, you're going to have questions seeking to undercut the whistleblower, to, to, to cast doubt on the whistleblower's testimony. So I think that, that, that by far the better course is 
go go find the people who have personal knowledge, get them to testify, and protect the whistleblower. So I just wanted to pick up on something you said at the very beginning of your um, of your response about hearsay. Um, much has been made of the fact that the whistleblower didn't have direct knowledge, um, and aside from the fact that um, all of these. Uh, all of the particulars um, in the whistleblower's complaint have been independently corroborated. Um, it's true also that um, hearsay can be a predicate for an investigation. Absolutely. So, um, e- even in the context of the criminal law, um, you can use hearsay as a basis for a criminal investigation. There's, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You just, you know, the the inspector general has an obligation to determine whether the information in the complaint is credible and. The fact that it's hearsay is something that you take into account in making that determination, but the fact that it's hearsay doesn't mean it's not credible. Um, you know, we we rely on hearsay all the time in our daily lives. If if somebody who we trust as reliable tells us something, and we and it it's apparent it's apparent on the face of it this person has a reason to know that we'll we'll rely on it. And it's the same thing in this context. There's nothing wrong with hearsay. I mean, furthermore, the FBI's director's investigative and operations guide, whatever the DIOG is, is, full title of the DIOG is, specifically states that you can use information like this to open an investigation. What you are supposed to avoid is violations of the Privacy Act, and that seems to be where the focus is, not whether or not the information is hearsay, which seems to be very much misunderstood and conflated with the concept of unreliable. Right. Um, which it is not. So. Well, and there's also been this this back and forth about the kind of spurious claim that the inspector general changed the standards to allow this complaint to be filed, which is is you know the the the, the there was a, a talking point a week or so ago that claimed that prior to August of this year, um, the whistleblowers weren't allowed to file complaints based on hearsay. And then the inspector general changed the rules so that this whistleblower could file a complaint based on hearsay, which is totally wrong. Um, the, the, the rules weren't changed at all. There was a slight change in the form, but it, it still made it, it always made clear that you didn't have to have firsthand knowledge when you when you filed the complaint. But in, de, in determining credibility, the inspector general would, would take into account whether there was actual information or whether it was just hearsay. But back to your point on the issue of testimony before Congress, it seems like the, the point of that would be just to expose this individual. What precautions can Congress take, and how do those differ um, in terms of protecting the identifying uh, features of a testifying witness? Um, would any of those, is there, is there any expectation any of those would have any efficacy? And can you distinguish those from a criminal proceeding? Well, you start, start with the fact that in a criminal proceeding, um, there, there is a privilege for the identity of informants in a case. Um, if an informant is not testifying and if the informant does not have knowledge that is material to the defense, the government doesn't even need to disclose the identity of an informant. And, and frankly, I think this situation falls into that That's category. It's a Roviero case, Ro- too, which will hyperlink uh, right. into the notes it's, it's of the cast. 350 something U.S. 350 U.S., I think 52. And, you know, the, the, here's a witness who doesn't have personal knowledge, basically couldn't testify firsthand to anything. Um, and you know the whole the case is going to be built on the underlying stuff. So I think there's a an argument that even in the context of a criminal case where somebody's liberty is at stake, 
um, you wouldn't need to disclose the, the uh, uh, witness's identity. Um, in terms of, of other kinds of protections, um, there, I've seen press reports that suggest the Intelligence Committee is considering having the witness testify remotely, um, have maybe disguising the witness's name, uh, voice with, with the machine. Um, it seems to me that the, the, the far more straightforward approach is simply don't have the witness testify because if you, if you do have the witness testify remotely or, or conceal the witness's voice, um, you're going to create all sorts of opportunities for, for people to claim this is unfair, um, look, look what they're doing, and it may or may not be, be effective. I mean, the, 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 presumably there will be a lot of hostile questions directed at the witness, which are intended in part to try to get information to identify the witness, and there's no guarantee that the witness's identity would, emerge, would, would not emerge from that testimony. And to your point, so is some of this information being privileged in a criminal setting, you there are circumstances under which a covert, for example, intelligence officer might be permitted to testify wearing light disguise, maybe behind a screen, something, as long as... Not have the, to give true name. Yeah. Right. But I think the point of that limited body of case law, which I think started with a, a case in Detroit involving a high-value detective... Uh, many years ago and ended up in D.C. Circuit with, I believe, CIA people who didn't want to be identified was as long as the right to confront and cross-examine witnesses uh, is fully realized during trial, then that, you know, that those, those are the questions. And there's no such, there's not really that kind of right that attaches no. to a congressional proceeding. No, there's no right to confrontation in a congressional proceeding, as anybody who's testified in a congressional proceeding can tell you. Um, Congress is entitled to make its own rules. That's that's uh, uh, established in the Constitution. Um, and this is an investigative inquiry. This is not a trial to which due process attaches. What would happen if if it actually proceeded, if the House impeached the president and the president were to go to trial in the Senate? You'd probably have a different set of rules. Undoubtedly, the president would have the right, as as President Clinton did, to have counsel president, present uh, and present the case. And if witnesses were testified, would, were to testify, I'm sure that the president's counsel would be entitled to cross-examine them. But we're a long way from that. We're just in an in investigative congressional proceeding now. But there have been um, concerns, at, at least on the right, saying that the you know the lack of, of the ability to cross-examine makes the um, impeachment inquiry fundamentally unfair, and that's one of the bases to resist cooperating with it. Well, that would that argument would have a little more force if there weren't two parties present, uh, two political parties represented on the committee. Um, there certainly there are plenty of defenders of the president who can uh, uh, attack the credibility of witnesses, seek to put, put forward parts of the witness's testimony that are favorable to the president. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in there, there are innumerable congressional hearings that have taken place over the years, and to my knowledge, there's never been a one where the person who's the object of the hearing has been afforded an opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses in the hearing. Wow. If we could pivot now for a second to talk about classified information and its permissible uses, is it, can any branch of government use classify or declassify information for political purposes? Well, you're not allowed to classify information for political purposes or to cover up wrongdoing or to protect uh, against embarrassment. Um, the classification is governed by Executive Order 13526, 
um, that sets forth um, classification. Um, it's, it's section 1.7. Um, and it, it gives a, a number of reasons why you cannot classify. The, the flip side of that is that there are specific requirements to classify information, and it has to be that there is identifiable damage to the national security if the information is disclosed. You can't, so, so you can't classify something because it would cause you political damage if it was disclosed. The question of declassification is a little more complicated. Um, partly because uh, the president has ultimate control over declassification and partly because there is a provision that allows for declassification of information if the public interest in disclosure outweighs the, uh, the need to con for continued secrecy of the information. Um, so uh, it, it, there's probably a little more flexibility on the declassification side to, to declassify something for political purposes. And I think there are probably, you could probably make arguments that, for example, when, uh, th that, uh, th when the President Obama declassified information about the raid in which Osama bin Laden was killed, that there was some degree of political motivation to that, even if it, there was also a motivation that says this is something the American public needs to know. So yeah, I think multiple victims, you know, it, the sense of closure. And, yeah, I think, right. it, I think it's, hard, it, 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 it's harder to argue that political motivation can never play a role in declassification. I mean, when I was at ODNI, we spent a lot of time declassifying information in the wake of the Snowden disclosures. Was there a, a political motivation to that? Maybe in part there was, um, it, it, but there, was all, there were also other motivations as well. So I think that's harder to parse out. Let's talk a little bit more about like um, the prohibition about uh, against classifying for political reasons. Right. Um, you know, there there have been some arguments that uh, that that conflate basically um, the president and the national interest, right? Like that uh, embarrassments to the president are a national interest, and that's why it's acceptable to to classify things. I think I think you have to be careful how you characterize that. There, for example, it is routine and not particularly controversial to classify conversations, memorandum of conversations the president had with foreign leaders. Um, and, and Just like we protect foreign government information, right. and we would always do that. Right. And, and, in, and in some sense, there, you know, there may be a, a desire to avoid embarrassing the president in that regard, but that's in the context of national security. I don't think if, if, it, if to pick a random example, the president was you know, caught uh, in a compromising position the fact that the par that that the that that would embarrass the president, I don't think you can say that that would cause damage to the national security of the country. Well, like let's take the transcript that is um, that has been published by the White House, for example. Um, president Zelensky is critical of you know other foreign leaders. Um, the the two presidents are talking very candidly, uh, and you know in the wake of the Snowden disclosures and WikiLeaks, um, we argued. Um, that uh, those kinds of things can happen because it makes it much more difficult to conduct diplomacy. It makes it, you know, those kinds of um, embarrassments undermine um, the capacity for uh, the United States to negotiate with, you know, foreign governments. What about those arguments? So, look, this the transcript of the president's call with Zelensky 
was originally classified secret, no foreign, no foreign meaning no dissemination to foreign uh, officials. Um, and uh, in my view, that's an entirely appropriate classification to to put to, to a uh, to the president's conversation with the foreign leaders. There there is damage to national security if foreign leaders talk candidly to the president and then see that played out. But remember, this was declassified by the White House. They made the decision that the the you know to quote the language I gave before the public interest in declassification in disclosure outweighs the need for secrecy. So I don't have any problem with the original classification of this document. Um, it's it and and then the decision was made to declassify it. Okay. Well, assuming arguendo that. The declassification. (laughs) Well, assuming for a minute that the declassification occurred. Hey, you know what? I can throw that Latin around when I need to. Um, All right, but assuming the declassification occurred because it was in the public interest. Right. No harm, no foul. But let's say, for example, that it was for no other reason um, than to assist the president in his election campaign by getting ahead of this. I'm I'm not saying that, that, that that's the position that I'm taking. I'm just saying assume that for a minute. This entire classified information and intelligence ecosystem was basically started by George Washington, right? And in his first speech on the congressional, uh, before Congress, he specifically said that the agencies should be funded in the public interest. He didn't say in my interest. Um, I'm kind of digging the house I'm living in right now. I'm having a really good time. This power is like rock star fun. He said, you know, in the public interest. So... Assuming for a minute that it really isn't in the public, there was nothing that the public gained through this process. Are there any teeth in this? Uh, uh, it's, obviously, it's an, an executive order, but is there, are there any statutes that would exact any kind of penalty for this? No, uh, not as to the president. Um, the, the, the pre, the, certainly, it's the position of the executive branch that the president has ultimate essentially uncontrollable authority over over classification, which is why this is the the classification rules are in in an executive order and not in a statute. Um, If the the consequences of the president's inappropriate disclosure of classified information uh, have to be entirely political. And you, you saw for example, when the president, uh, sitting with uh, the Russians in the, very early on in his term, uh, talked about uh, in, information that was believed to uh, disclose information that we had obtained from a foreign government, um, that it's 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 not a violation of law for him to do that. Um, it may be profoundly in, unwise and reflect uh, an an, uh, an incapacity to hold the office that the president holds. But it's but it, but it's a political matter to deal with, not a legal one. Can I just ask one other um, question? I even ask two. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I'll probably get there. Um, I wonder about um, the retroactive classification of um, of emails in the State Department. Um, how is it, you know under what legal theory is that viable? Um, it appears to be uh, done for political purposes. Is there any way that people, you know, is there any recourse for people who were using unclassified media for things that were marked unclassified at the time? Is there any protection that they have against um, sanction for security violations when they're retroactively classified? So, so a couple of separate things. Um, the concept of retroactive classification is not novel. Um, the 
the, the relevant rules make clear that even if information has been disclosed, it can still be classified. Um, so that, that concept is not novel. That's a separate question from whether people should be disciplined for transmitting over an open system information that was classified but not marked classified. And, and I'm speaking, I, this, this is not anything that's reflected to my knowledge in laws or in, uh, or in executive orders, but I think sort of a, a, an appropriate rule of thumb would be, is this something that a, a reasonable person would have understood was classified? To, to give you an example, if I send you an email about a covert action that I'm involved with, disclosing details of the covert action, um, I know darn well that's classified, even if it's not marked mm -hmm. as classified. Um, and I know I'm disclosing classified information. So far as I can tell, none of the information here that's been determined to be classified fell within that category. And I'm not necessarily accepting your characterization that the retroactive classification is being done for political purposes. Um, but even if it's done in good faith, it's one thing to say, we've gone back and looked at these and we've identified 130 instances of classified information. I, I'm pretty sure that if somebody went back and looked at all my ODNI emails on the low side, um, they'd probably find a, a couple of them where I went a little too far in talking about something and, and may have disclosed some classified information. But I was trying not to, and I don't think I'd be... be subject to uh, any kind of discipline other than perhaps um, a letter that says, be more careful. Counseling. You'd have to go to counseling, yeah. right? Be told. Okay. Well, so Bob, uh, thanks so much for answering all of our questions about classification. Um, you're going to be moderating a panel on national security and the courts at the 29th Annual Review Conference. Can you give us a sneak preview here about some of the issues and cases you'll be talking about? Sure. Um, I, I've got a... a, a great panel um, uh, with uh, first Judge James Bosberg, who sits on the district court here in Washington, but is also um, on the FISA court. Um, just I've issued a 130-page opinion. Just issued a, 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 well, he didn't just issue it. It was just, it was just a declassified and released, um, a, an opinion about uh, uh, um, e what are either egregious civil liberties violations or missteps by the FBI, depending upon your perspective, in the execution of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Um, Sounds interesting. Um, <laughs> so you have, you have Judge Roseberg, you have Hina Shamsi of the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, Bob Edinger, who for many years was uh, in the CIA's Office of General Counsel, and John Bellinger, who's the former um, legal advisor to the National Security Council and to the State Department. And we're going to be covering both recent cases um, uh, on the issue of what's the proper role for the courts in national security, and talking specifically about doctrines such as uh, standing, state secrets privilege, uh, judicial deference, uh, and political questions, and how those play out in the national security context. Well, you sold me. I'll be there. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Bob. Thank uh, you. We're glad you came in. We hope you'll come back. Uh, and if you want to hear more about these legal topics, uh, the registration for the 29th Annual Review Conference is online at ambar.org slash natsec 2019. Early registration ends on October 24th, so basically move quickly. All right? That means it's cheaper right now, just to make that clear. Um, we're glad you came in today, Bob. We want to have you back soon. 
to do another cast. And thanks to everybody else for listening. We really appreciate you tuning in. Please remember to subscribe and rate us on your listening app of choice. And we will hyperlink the law referenced by Bob in the Notes to our podcast. Yes, you can find links to those notes to those legal topics in the Notes to our podcast or online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And that website is also where you can find out more information about the upcoming conference as well. You can drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more National Security Law. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.